may have taken me longer to write the children's sermon than the uh, regular sermon. So um, I'm so thankful for Sam. Um, <clears throat> all right, so we are in Psalm 34 here. And as I was telling the children, the, the center of this psalm is that, is that charge to taste and see that the Lord is good. He, he, he begins the psalm by, by commanding us to, to bless the Lord at all times. Actually, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually on his mouth. And then he calls us uh, to, to join him. He, he calls the people of God. He, he calls those who have been justified, those who have been adopted, those who have been sanctified through, through faith in the Savior. He, he calls on all of the redeemed to join him. He says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name Together. And so, like Psalm 33, this is a, a call to worship. But the difference is that, that in this psalm, David is saying, listen, you need to experience this. You need to, to taste and to see the goodness of the Lord. And so we want to understand, how does David intend to get us there? What is it that he wants us to see? What is it that he wants us to, to taste? And, and how do we actually do that? But I, I want to begin... By, by noticing the, the full extent of God's goodness. And we see it in the little word all that David uses there in the first verse. Again, notice, notice what he says. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. And that use of all is, is profoundly significant, especially when you consider the historical context of this psalm, the, the context that's mentioned in the, the title. Sometimes we just sort of skip over those titles and we don't always read them. Sometimes they just say of David or they say some Hebrew musical term that we don't even really know what it means. But, but here, the, the title of the psalm actually gives us a historical context. It, it tells us when this song was composed. It, it tells us when it was first sung. It was, it was a song that was composed when he changed his behavior for, before Abimelech. And Abimelech here, if you, if you actually go back to 1 Samuel 21 and you, you see the, the account there, you'll say, well, the king's name is Achish. Uh, but, but Abimelech is sort of like Pharaoh, except for the Philistines. It's just the name of the Philistine king. And so when he changed his name before the Philistine king, and he was sent away. Now, now what is that referring to? What's the story? Maybe you, don't, maybe you don't remember your Old Testament history perfectly. So let me, let me remind you of what's going on here. You'll, you'll remember that the people under Samuel had asked for a king. They wanted a king like all the other nations. And, and God had given them a king. He had given them Saul, the king that they wanted, the king who was a head taller than everyone else, the king who looked impressive, but he was a worldly king and a king who did not follow after God, and so God rejected him as king, and he sent Samuel to anoint instead one of Jesse's sons. I remember that process, right? He goes through all of Jesse's sons, and he's like, is there anybody else? You know, I, God sent me here. I've, I've got the right address, but, but it doesn't appear to be any of your kids. And he's like, well, there is one more little boy out in the, out in the field. He says, well, bring him also. And David is the shepherd boy that, that is anointed to be king. And one of the first things he does after his anointing is that he, he comes into the, the military camp of the Israelites as they face off against the Philistines. And they, he hears the, the champion of the Philistines taunting the Israelites. And, and he says, and David says, you know, we've got God on our side. Why isn't someone going out there to shut him up? Why isn't someone going out there to, to, to remind him who the Lord is? And all of the mighty men tremble and, and think David is, is foolish. But David goes out before the giant 
with his five stones, and with the Lord's help, of course, slays the giant Goliath. And Goliath, if you'll remember, is from Gath. And, and Gath is in Philistia. And, and Gath is actually where David goes when he is running in 1 Samuel 21. But who's he running from? He's running from Saul, the anointed king. Because, because David was the, the king. I mean, because Saul was the king. And David had been anointed to replace him rather than Saul's own son. Saul was jealous. He, he was jealous for his dynasty, and he wanted to kill David. And so David is running for his life from Saul. In fact, his, Saul is so uh, out to get him that David thinks he'll be safer in Philistia, in the hometown of Goliath, the giant that he killed. But while he's there, he is discovered, and he is brought before the king. And, and David, being in a perilous situation at that point, pretends to be mad. Let's drool, kind of go drool down his, his beard, and he, he pretends to be out of his mind. And the king of Philistia simply will not believe that this person, this, this crazy person, is the person who killed their champion. And he says, get him, I've got enough madmen, get him out of here. There's no way that that's David. And he sends him off, and David is saved. The Lord intervenes. He's in the court of the king of the Philistines, and they don't kill him. Because God closes their eyes to see his true identity. And it is in the midst of, it is in reflecting upon that salvation uh, that David experienced that he writes this psalm. And so what we recognize is that David is, when he says, praise the Lord at all times, he, he's, he's not living a, a, a comfortable, quiet life in the country. When he says, praise the Lord at all times, he is in the midst of a serious trial. And not only was he in the midst of a serious trial, but he knew that the people whom he was calling to join him experienced the same kind of trials. He, he knew that his situation of, a, of affliction in this life was not unique. It was not un, unusual. On the contrary, trials and afflictions of all kinds are the common experience of God's people in this present evil age. It's not a very popular thing for preachers to say today. <laughs> but, but it needs to be said. It is the, the truth. In this life, you will have trouble. In fact, David says it explicitly in verse 19. Look, look at the end of the, the psalm. He, he says, many are the afflictions of the righteous of those who are right with God, of those who have been forgiven and cleansed, of those who have been reconciled to their heavenly Father, the righteous. He says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Being reconciled to God, being justified in His sight, being declared His beloved child, does not guarantee you an easy or a comfortable life in this present evil age. But on the contrary, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. You, you all know this firsthand. You know that following Jesus has, has not made all your trouble go away. You know that you have continued to experience the, the, the brokenness and the misery of life in this fallen world. And it's not just David who says this. The, the scriptures pronounce it from beginning to end. Jesus says it in, in uh, the Gospel of John. He says, in this world you will have tribulation. The Apostle Paul told the, uh, the, the churches that he planted, he says, through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. 
And when writing to the Thessalonians, one of those churches, he, he said it just again. He, he says, you yourselves know that, when, that you were destined for this. When we were with you, we kept telling you that you were to suffer affliction. How's that for a, a church planting strategy? Paul says, listen, if you come follow Jesus, you will have many afflictions. You will have much trouble. And, and Peter confirms this. Peter, actually reflecting on this psalm, writes to the Christians who are dispersed through, throughout the Roman Empire, and he says to them, Beloved, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you as if something strange were happening to you. It is not something strange. It is the reality of life in this fallen world. Scripture says from beginning to end, many are the afflictions of the righteous. And so when David says all times, he means all times. He, he is specifically and intentionally including those times of affliction. He says even in the midst of your hard times, even in the midst of the trial, you must bless the Lord. You must praise Him. You, you, even when the, the floods are rising and the, and the fires are burning, even when you find yourself passing through the valley of the shadow of death, you must bless the Lord. Now as David said in his, his prayer, this seems foolish to the world. The, the faith of the, the believer seems like, like nonsense. It, it is against our intuition. Why do we bless the Lord in the midst of our trials? Why do we bless the Lord in the, in the midst of our afflictions? It's, it's comforting at one level just simply to know that, that this is not unusual, that these afflictions do not negate the promises of God, that, that, that this, is, this is not somehow a proof against the fact that God is doing what he said he would, would do. There's, there's some comfort in that. But there's, but there's something more going on here. David just isn't saying simply, yeah, listen, listen, those, those trials are just part of life, but, uh, but eventually it will get better. Rather, what David is saying, he says, listen, even in the midst of that trial, trust the Lord. It's what, what Paul means when he says rejoice always. It's what James means when he, when he says specifically, rejoice when you encounter trials. So what's the rationale? What's the, what's the reason? Why do we bless God at all times? Why do we praise him in all situations? Why does David call us to this here in this psalm? Well, he, he tells us in verses 4 through 7. Look again at what David writes. He says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. David is seeking the Lord from the midst of his trial, and he, and he tells us that when he sought the Lord in the midst of his trial, when he sought the Lord in the midst of his affliction, he was delivered. In fact, notice how he describes those who, who look to the Lord. He says they are radiant. They, they, their faces shall, shall never be ashamed. Their, their faces beam with hope and with, with joy and with, with expectation. They, they, they know that the one with them is greater than the one who stands against them. And so therefore, they, their, their faces are not covered with gloom. Their faces are not covered with despair, but rather their faces are radiant with hope. 
Because they know that the angel of the Lord, the angel and all, the angel of the Lord and all of his power surrounds them to protect them. Of course, you might recognize that that image means that enemies are coming against them. It means that they are being besieged, but though they are surrounded by enemies, they have nothing to fear because the angel of the Lord is with them. God always protects and ultimately delivers those who fear him, those who who walk in the footsteps of faith. This is actually what what David is is getting at in, in the second half of verse 19 and then into verse 20. Notice what he writes. He says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. There's that word all again. We're to bless God at all times because the Lord delivers us out of all of our afflictions, out of all of our troubles. He he delivers us from all of our fears. And that's the point that he's driving home in, in verse 20 when he says, He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Now you may hear in that the, the echoes of what John says later about Jesus. Remember when When the Roman soldiers were were tired of the the display of the execution, they were ready to to go home. They went about to to break the legs of the criminals who had been buried with Jesus so that they would die faster and they could get it over with. But Jesus was already gone. And so they did not have to, to break his legs. But that sort of divine providence where the bones of Jesus were not broken in his execution, it was a fulfillment of this Promise. So what, what is this promise all about? What does, it, what does it mean to say that God keeps the bones of the righteous, that he will not let them be broken? I want to suggest to you that it actually communicates two promises. This, this strange image of God keeping our bones actually communicates two promises. And the first promise is the promise of protection in the midst of affliction. Now, it's not literally a promise that, that none of God's children will ever have their bones broken. At least I hope not. I've had many broken, broken bones in my life. It seems like when my family gathers, at least one or, or more of the cousins is always in some sort of cast. Uh, you know, right now, my uh, uh, niece, uh, Lily, uh, has, has a broken elbow. My, you've seen my son many times in cast on various parts of his, his body. This is not a promise, literally, that the righteous will never suffer a, a broken bone. But, but rather, it is an image. It is an image that reminds us that God controls the extent of our affliction. Whatever it is that we are suffering and whatever evil is intended by the perpetrator, ultimately it is God who is in control. It is ultimately God who sets the limits. This is what we we see in uh, the book of Job as as, as Satan comes into the very presence of God and says, I'd like to to put Job through the ringer. And God says, "You you may go this far and no further. Ultimately, it is God who sets the limits so that he is working his plan. And his plan is to work for the good of those who love him. It is a a profound promise that God sets the limits of the afflictions that we will endure in this life. He will not let us be overwhelmed. He will not let us be destroyed. He, He will not let us be consumed. We do not always know what he is doing. We do not always know why he is doing it. We sometimes wish he would would set the limits a little bit differently than he does. 
But it is a profound comfort to know that the all-loving, all-wise God is the God who protects his people. And we can suffer nothing that God is not in control of. We can suffer nothing that God uh, is not ultimately sovereign over. There is no power in this universe that can hinder or, or thwart his will. He does whatever he pleases, and he is the God who sets the limits of our afflictions. And that's, that's the first thing that's promised here. He will not allow our bones to be broken, but not only that, he will keep them. That's the second promise. And it's the promise of resurrection. Not only will he protect us through the affliction, but he will bring us through the affliction to new life on the other side. Again, it's a, it's a strange image, but it resonates with so much of what we see in the Old Testament. Remember the end of the, the book of Genesis when, when Joseph gives instructions about his bones. Seems a little bit odd. He's like, he's like hey, don't leave my bones here in Egypt. Take them back to the promised land. And the people of Israel thought that was so significant, they recorded it again later in the Pentateuch. Again, they, at the end of, of Numbers, I think it is, he says, listen, Joseph gave instructions about his bones. And when the, the author of Hebrews reflects upon that, when the author of Hebrews reflects upon that, he, he says, this was a declaration of great faith. Because he was declaring his faith. The same faith we heard in the call to worship this morning. The same faith declared by, by Job when he was going through his affliction. He says, listen, this body may perish. But I will see the Lord in the flesh. <laughs> this life may end in death. But that death will not be the end. Because I serve the Lord who rules even death. A promise that was sealed and guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead so that Peter can say, through Jesus' resurrection, we have all now been born again to a living hope through his resurrection from the dead. Because he rose, we will rise. Because he rose, we know that for us, death is actually gain. God will bring us through to new Life. That's the promise that David is clinging to here. He says, he will not allow your bones to be broken and he will keep them. It's not that God literally needs our bones to, to, to accomplish resurrection any more than he's going to literally keep our bones from, from being broken in this life. But the image still stands. It still communicates what God wants it to communicate. He says, listen, death will not be the end for you. But my word is the power that brings dry bones back to life. My word is the power that conquers even death. And so we as the righteous, as those who, who trust in the Lord, we are those who can be radiant, even in the midst of trial. Like Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians, we do not lose hope, though the outer nature is wasting away. We know that there is being prepared for us a weight of glory. And how is it being prepared? It's being prepared for us by these slight and momentary afflictions that we go through in this present evil age. That's what David wants us to see. He wants us to know the, the reality of the hope that is ours. And he wants us to know it by experience. 
You see, that's the, the center of this psalm. I haven't left myself much time, but that's the, the center of this psalm. The center of this psalm is David's call to taste and see that the Lord is good. Up to this point, we've been reading the wrapper. We, we know we have a blueberry sucker. But David says, no, put it in your mouth. Taste it. On Wednesday nights this summer, I've heard some of you come back from, from trips where you've, you've seen national parks and you're declaring what you saw with your eyes and it was very different to be there. It was awe-inspiring because you saw it. That's what David's calling us to. He says, you've read about the parks. You may have even seen some photographs, but you need to see it. You need to stand there. You need to taste it. You need to, to know that he is good. So how do we do that? How do we, how do we have this first-hand experience of God's goodness, the, the goodness that is for those who are righteous, the goodness that is for those who have been justified and, and adopted and are being sanctified? What's well, exactly what David tells us here. How do we come to know the goodness of God experientially? David tells us in verse 9, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. It is those who fear the Lord. It is those who, who walk in the footsteps of those fear, that fear, who know his goodness firsthand. Look at what he says. He says, a young lion may suffer want and hunger, but those who, who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Just, just think for a moment about what that means. A, a, a lion is the sort of the, the picture of self-sufficiency. He is, he is the apex predator. And yet even a lion, even a young lion, in all his strength, David says, may suffer want. He may go without. But not so those who fear the Lord. Those who fear the Lord. Those who put their faith in Him. They experience His goodness. They taste His goodness even in the midst of their trials. They know that, that He protects them. And they know that he will bring them through to new life. So, again, the, the implication is, is clear. If we would taste, if, if we would see, if, if we would experience the goodness of God, what must we do? We must walk in the fear of the Lord. But how? How, how do we do that? What does it mean to, to walk in the fear of the Lord? Well, again, David tells us that's what this psalm is for. Notice what he says in verse 11. He says, Oh, come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So here it is. This, is. this is David's instruction. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. If you desire life, if, if you desire to know the goodness of God throughout all of your days, here is what you must do. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. This is what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. But, but again, we, we struggle with this. How, how are we to make sense of it? It sounds a lot like works righteousness, at least to our reformed ears. We're like, whoa, David, you know, maybe you need to check your theology. Are you sure that this is the way that we experience the goodness of God? You're, you're telling me that I, I need to keep my tongue from deceit and I need to do good in order for God to bless me? That sounds an awful lot like works righteousness. It sounds awful like a quid pro quo. Do this for God and he will do that for 
you. But I, but I want to suggest to you this morning that if that's the way you hear David's instructions, you have fundamentally misunderstood what he is saying. David is not giving us a, a quid pro quo. He, he's not teaching here works righteousness. David knows better than any of us that the only way to be right with God is to have our sins covered, to, to be forgiven to not have our transgressions counted against us. We, we saw that in Psalm 32, and this is a continuation of that flow. David knows that he is righteous before God because of God's grace, that he is righteous by faith alone. And therefore, David cannot think that we earn God's blessing by establishing our own righteousness through our own works. But rather, David is simply calling us to walk in the footsteps of faith. That's what it is to keep your tongue from evil. That's what it is to keep your lips from speaking deceit. That's what it is to, to turn away from evil and do good. It is to walk in the footsteps of faith. Think about it for a moment. Why do you deceive? Why do you lie? Why, why do you work against the good of your, your neighbor? It is because you are grasping it is because you are asserting your own interests. It is because you are trying to protect yourself. And, God, and David says, listen, walk in faith. Trust God. Trust that your life is in his hands. Trust that he has your good and do what you see him doing. He is a God who gives himself away for the good of others. He is a God who delights to work good, even sometimes for his enemies. Be like him. Be holy as your Father is holy. Emulate Him. Walk in the footsteps of faith. You, you've seen His goodness. Now walk after it. Walk in the footsteps of faith because when you walk in faith, you will taste the goodness of the Lord. You will experience it firsthand because it is real and He will be with you in your affliction. His rod and His heft will comfort and protect you. And the day is coming when he will cause you to be raised again to new life with a glorified body. That is the hope of the righteous. That is the hope of those who walk in the footsteps of faith. If you would taste the goodness of the Lord, walk the path that he has set before you. Walk in the footsteps of faith. And you will taste the sweetness of his wisdom and you will know the comfort of his protection. And you will be radiant with the hope of resurrection. Because all of that is yours through faith in God, through Christ, by the Spirit. And because such a hope is ours, that's why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness. We thank you for your grace. And we ask, Father, that you would make us people of faith. That you would, you would strengthen the eyes of our hearts to, to see the full wonder of what is ours in Christ. And that, and that you would set us free from the fears and the anxieties that, that cause us to lie and to deceive and to do evil. That we, might, that we might bring forth the fruit of righteousness in our lives to the praise of your glory, Father. May we taste and see your goodness even as we walk the path that you have set before us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.